Life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And in a marathon, endurance trumps speed. Everyone is running the race course of life. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4. Today we're going to finish up, Lord willing, in uh, the book of 2 Timothy, and next week uh, we'll start uh, in Ephesians. Today we want to talk about the topic of finishing well, finishing well. It's important that we begin well, but it's imperative that we finish well. You all know the story of Aesop. Uh, Aesop's fable is the story of the hare and the tortoise, and they're in a race, and the tortoise uh, did not begin well necessarily. The hare began extremely well, but who made it to the finish line first, right? Finishing well is real critical. And the interesting part of that Aesop's fable is that life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Yes? Some of you look like you've been in the marathon a long time, right? <laughs> that would be me, yes. And in a marathon, endurance trumps speed. Endurance always is more important than speed in the marathon. In order to finish first, you first have to finish. You have to finish the race before you can do that. The very first marathon was run following the Athenian victory over King Darius uh, and his army of invading Persians about 490 BC. There was a contest between the Athenians and, and the Persians. And the Greek runner who carried the news of the victory back to the Athenians was named Pheidippides. The battle took place on a plain, an open plain, uh, near the coastal village of Marathon, the Greek village of Marathon. And Pheidippides ran approximately 25 miles back to Athens to tell him the good news of the victory. Legend has it that he ran with such abandonment that when he reached the nervous crowds of Athenians who were waiting for the news, he got there and he simply said, Nike, which means victory. That's what it means, the Greek word for Nike, victory. And then he dropped over, dead. 1897, the marathon was what the first event that was included, one of the first events in the revived Olympic Games. That's when the Olympic Games got started again. And the official distance of a marathon is 26 miles, 385 yards. Many, many marathoners will tell you the first 26 miles are easy. The last quarter mile will kill you. So Paul is running the last quarter mile in this book, in this chapter, in these verses. The finish line is in sight. He is at the very end of his life. He's written a letter to Timothy about three or four years earlier. This is the last letter he writes to Timothy. It's the last record of anything that he wrote that we have extant. He's been tried and sentenced to death by the Emperor Nero. He's being held in the Mamertine prison in Rome, down underground. There's literally a hole in the ceiling that let you down through. It's literally a dungeon, so he's chained down there. Timothy's his son in the faith. Timothy's been part of Paul's missionary team for probably the better part of 15 years at this point, quite a long time. Uh, Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus, and as we've been talking about for weeks now, Ephesus has serious troubles. It's infested with false teachers, and Timothy's having to confront a lot of corrupt doctrine and really, really, really uh, uh, bad leadership in the church and take control of that and bring it back to a biblical model of how God wants a church to operate. So this last chapter, Paul is literally passing the baton of faith to Timothy because he is ready to depart. He's ready to leave. So we're going to look at verses 6, 7, and 8. And these verses today in 2 Timothy 4, 6, 7, and 8 really comprise Paul's epitaph. They're really his spiritual last will and testament. Paul really here is giving Timothy a bird's eye view of his life, his past life, his present and what he's looking forward to the future. So if you look at verse 6, Paul is looking around in verse 6, and he talks about the present. 
And he uses the words, I am. He's discussing his present circumstances in verse 6. In verse 7, Paul's looking back. He's reviewing his past. And he uses the word, I have. And in verse 8, he's looking ahead to the future. And he uses the words, in the future, I will. So these verses really are past, present, and future. And let's go to verse 6. Uh, in the narrative, it says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. If you look at verse 5, just before this verse 6, he's exhorting Timothy to be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, because I'm not going to be here to be of assistance. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Here's the principle. We will finish life well when we offer ourselves to God every day and when we view our death as a departure, not a disaster. We will finish life well when we offer ourselves to God every day and when we view our death as a departure, not a disaster. Now, here's a pretty obvious truth. Everybody's born sometime and everybody dies sometime. And none of us are in control of either of those events. However, what we are responsible for is how we live between our A-Day and our D-Day. Your A-Day is your arrival date. Your D-Day is your departure date. You know, when you look at gravestones in the cemetery, almost all of them have a date of birth and a date of death. And you say, well, that would be pretty obvious, Brad. But in between those is the most important measurement of all. That's a little dash. Born X date, died X date, and in between is a little dash between the years, right? That little dash is called your life, their life. It's what we do here on earth. What we do with the dash is the result of choices and commitments we make. One gravestone of a man named Lester Moore reveals some tantalizing clues as to the choices he may have made in life. His gravestone reads... Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. Can't you see a story behind that? Maybe more than one. It could be a drama, tragedy. So in sharp contrast, Paul made a commitment decades earlier to offer his life to Jesus. And his lifelong sacrifice was now about to be completed. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now, you know, to us, our modern ears, we say, that sounds strange. What's this drink offering business? But Paul is writing to a Jewish audience, and they would understand exactly what he meant. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were commanded to offer burnt offerings, animal sacrifices, as part of an atonement or a payment for their sins. It, it really was a foreshadowing uh, of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, whereby an innocent animal was put to death in the place of a guilty human. Jesus Christ, being perfectly innocent, was put to death on our behalf, who were guilty. So the animal sacrifices were a forward look, if you will, a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So the animal was slain, and the entire animal was placed on top of this bronze uh, offering, bronze altar. And they had, of course, a significant wood fire underneath at that point in time. And on top of the animal, they would put a flour mixed with oil. And on top of that flour mixed with oil, they would pour about a quart of sweet wine. And then they would light the whole thing. And the oil and the wine and the flour and the oil would create this really, really, really fragrant aroma. I don't know if you get that when you barbecue or not, but that's really what this is in many ways. I mean, it was a... It was an offering, but it's an offering of a sweet savor, a sweet aroma. And the Old Testament talks about that quite a lot. So Paul now has been following Jesus daily for 30 years. And he says, I am that drink offering poured out on the altar. He's been laying down his life for his master for 30 years. And what he's essentially saying is, Caesar's not killing me. I'm choosing to lay down my life as a sacrifice for Jesus Christ. You must understand that Caesar didn't have to execute him. Paul could have saved his physical life simply by recanting the gospel and saying, I'm not going to preach anymore. I'm not going to take the gospel. I'm not going to be in any trouble, Caesar. I'm going to be a good boy. And he could have saved his life. 
But that's not what he did. He chose to follow Jesus Christ for the glory of the king, bring the gospel to the nations, and lay down his life as a sacrifice for Jesus Christ as king. About 10 years earlier in this, Paul had written in Romans, and you're very familiar with this passage, Romans 12.1. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 30 years before this date, Paul had met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And from that day forward, each and every day, he offered his life a sacrifice to the king. He laid down his life every morning. Lord, what do you want me to do today? Lord, who should I preach the gospel today? Lord, who needs my assistance today? Every single day. And you look and you say, well, I can do that. Of course. You're commanded to do that. Every day, lay down your life as a sacrifice for the king. Let the Lord control the calendar. Let the Lord control your appointment schedule. And that, of course, requires prayer and submission. Paul did not view his life as his own. His entire life belonged to Jesus. Paul viewed his life as expendable in the service of the king. He laid down his life every day in order to fulfill a ministry that Jesus Christ had given him. And he wrote that in Acts 20, 24, when he said, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul's goal was not to live in comfort, although I do like the air conditioning. Paul's goal was not to live in security. Paul's goal was not even to preserve his own life. Paul's goal was to obey and follow and please his king. His commitment to Jesus was not conditional. Paul didn't say, Jesus, um, I'll follow you as long as it's convenient, as long as it's comfortable, as long as it doesn't cost me too much. Most Christians today follow Jesus conditionally. Lord, I'll follow you as long as the price isn't too high. That would be like Jesus saying, I'll, um, I'll pay for your sins as long as it doesn't cost me my life. That's a price tag that's too hard to pray for you. Uh, I love you all, but I don't love you enough to lay my life down for you. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, I love you and I will lay it all down. That's why Paul wrote, in response to that sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are called to lay down our lives for him in whatever way that is. It may not involve your death. That's usually pretty easy. You only do it once. Laying down your life for Jesus Christ every day is like, man, I have to put up with this person again. That's laying down your agenda to love them even though they're not lovely. Sometimes dying seems easy compared to living for Jesus, especially with those irregular people in your life, right? So Paul's commitment was to finish the work that Jesus came, gave him to do. And if following Jesus cost him his life, well, his life belonged to Jesus anyway, right? Pretty simple. Here's the interesting application. When you and I follow Jesus, and we are obedient and we're following him, whatever happens to us as a result of that obedience is not our problem. It's his problem. Do you understand that? When you follow Jesus in obedience, whatever happens as a result of your obedience is not your problem. It's his problem. Your only job, my only job as sheep is to do what? Follow the shepherd. Right? Say yes. That's our only job. It's the shepherd's job to care for the sheep. And you're going, well, Lord, I can, I can only follow you if it doesn't cost me too much. Whose problem is it if your obedience costs you? It's his problem. He's the shepherd. We always do these deals with God. Lord, I'll, I'll follow you, but, but, but don't break my heart. Lord, I'll follow you, but don't break my pocketbook. Lord, I'll follow you, but I'm just not willing to put up with those people. That's doing business with God. Jesus said, I lay down my life for you. You lay down your life for me. Nobody cares for you like the good shepherd. Matter of fact, he cares for you more than you do yourself. No one will love you like Jesus. So when you follow him in obedience, wherever he calls you, whatever problems happen as a result of obedience, it's his problem, it's not yours. Does that make sense? 
Boy, you sound really convinced. <laughs> I know. It's going to be a challenge. So Paul says, not only have I laid down my life as an offering, but the time of my departure has come. He's saying, it's already here. It's arrived. It's obvious to Paul that his departure date is at hand. It's equally obvious that he is ready to leave. Paul said, I'm ready to die, not because my life is so bad, not because I'm such in physical pain, not because all my friends have died and I'm 95 by myself. He says, I'm ready to die because I finished everything God gave me to do. My work is done. When you get to heaven, we get to heaven, and Jesus says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. He means you done well, you finished well, you faithfully finished well the work he gave you to do while you were here on earth. Jesus modeled that for us the last night he was on earth. The very last night before he went to the cross, he prayed to his father in, June, in John 17 and said, Father, I glorified you on earth. How did Jesus glorify the Father on earth? By finishing the work you gave me to do. Not the work you gave Peter to do. Not the work you gave Andrew to do. The work you gave me to do. Jesus was ready to die for the sins of the world because he had completed every single thing his heavenly Father had given him to do except go to the cross within a matter of hours and die for the sins of the world. It's incumbent on you and I to understand the work God's given us to do. How are you going to know if you finish the work God gave you to do unless you ask Him? Lord, what's my job description? You've given me these years of life. What do you want me to do with them? He doesn't want you to waste them on trinkets. He wants you to invest them in treasures, right? So the truth is, if every day we finish the work that Jesus gave us to do for that day, this is real simple. Forget about lifetime, just one day at a time. You say, Lord, I wake up this morning at 6 o'clock in the morning. What work do you have for me to do today? What is your agenda for me today? Have you ever done that? Of course you have. Does he guide you? Of course he does. Does it surprise you sometimes? Yes, because his plan is not always our plan. So he has people call us up that we weren't anticipating. Opportunity for ministry. But Lord, it's an interruption. Don't you know my agenda is more important than yours? I mean, we don't say that to the Lord, but sometimes we kind of, you know. God has a right to interrupt our agendas. Isn't that shocking? Of course, he's the king, right? So if every day we finish the work that Jesus gave us to do that day, then at the end of lives, we can say with Jesus, Lord, I finished the work you gave me to do, and I'm ready to see you. See, Paul was ready to depart because his work was done, and he knew it. When you think of departure, I want you to think of an airport. When you go to an airport, you walk in the airport, you get the security, and you start looking at the monitors and the screens, and there's two banks of them. And one of them is arrivals, the other one's departures, right? Departure is real simple. It means that you're here now, but you're going to leave here, and you're going to go someplace else. Right? Pretty simple. So the word departure in Greek is analusis. A-N-A-L-U-S-I-S. It's a very rich word. There's actually four applications of this word departure in Greek. The first word picture is analusis is the word picture for unyoking an animal from the plow or the wagon. The animal's been pulling this heavy wagon or pulling the plow in the field, and you're taking the yoke off the animal. The yoke represents hard work and heavy loads and, and exhausting labor. So when Paul says, my departure date is at hand, He's saying the load of ministry that I'm carrying is very, very heavy. And God is going to take this yoke from me. And I'm looking forward to being released from it. The second word picture for departure is it means loosening the chains or bonds that hold a prisoner in, 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 in captive. So you and I, we live on this sin-filled, broken planet and our physical bodies are our prison. And many of us look in the mirror and we say, you know, the last five years have taught me some things about being a prisoner to my body. You know who doesn't get this? Youth. They don't get it. That's why they ride motorcycles and do all sorts of interesting things, because they are immortal. 
when you're in high school, nothing bad can happen to you, right, DJ? I mean, of course not. So our physical bodies constrain us and limit us. We're all subject to temptation, and unfortunately, much temptation comes through the five senses. So Paul says, I'm ready to be loosed from the chains, the bonds of this physical body that constrains me and tempts me, and I have to battle with. So being ushered into heaven by means of execution is going to be Paul's ultimate freedom. And it'll be for ours as well. The third word picture of departure is that of taking down a tent. How many of you have ever been camping? I don't mean glamping in the motorhome. I mean camping. Real dirt camping with a tent with your body on the dirt, on the ground. Okay, got it. You get it. Back in the day, I mean the day, for 6,000 years of recorded history, nomadic people lived in tents. They still do. And they follow the green grass with their herds. Wherever the green grass is, that's where the flocks and herds go, and that's where they go. So they're always taking down and putting up tents, taking down and putting up tents, right? We only do that on camping trips, right, which we call recreation, which is a misnomer. It's just flat work. <laughs> Have you ever fought the mosquitoes in a tent on the dirt? And at 2 a.m., your bladder has shrunk, and you got to get up and go out there, and you go, oh... I knew I should have bought that motorhome, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you're continually putting up and taking down a tent. And our physical bodies, they're the tents. They're only temporary dwelling places, right? This body you have is only temporary. By the way, most of our temporary tents are already leaking and creaking. That's just life, <laughs> right? Just like the tents. If you take a tent out of the garage, you haven't used it in 20 years, it's going to leak and creak. I mean, it's going to have troubles, right? So this earthly tent of Paul's body is about ready to be taken down. His camping trip on earth was finished, and he was ready to go to his permanent dwelling. See, home is permanent. When you get to heaven, you won't be living in tents. You'll be living in God's mansion, and that foundation is eternal. Once we get to heaven, you know one of the best news is? You'll never have to move, and you'll never have to change your dresses again. That's quite a scenario. Paul's looking forward to that. And the last word picture of departure is that of casting off the ropes that moor a ship to the dock, to shore. When a ship was ready to leave port and sail away, you know, they had ropes that, that held lines, lines that held the, the, the ship to the dock. And they unround those from the capstan, they loosened them and, and literally cast the ropes away so that the ship was now free to depart. That's another word picture of this word departure. Paul was an excellent sailor. He had sailed all over the Mediterranean, very familiar with sailing ships, ocean voyages. Paul says, look, when I say my departure is ready at hand, the lines that hold me to the harbor of earth are going to be cast off and I'm going to be free to sail. And he's going to sail through the deep ocean waters of death and he said, I'm going to arrive at the safe port of heaven. And for the Christian, Death is simply departing from earth and arriving in heaven. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians 5, and he says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, or we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Heaven is definitely preferable to life on earth. And you say, well, I can't see it. Precisely, that's why he says, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. We trust in the promises of God about heaven. See, for followers of Jesus, death is not a disaster. Death is a doorway that goes from earth into heaven. And the voyage between heaven and earth is instantaneous. You close your eyes here, you open them in heaven. You take your last breath here, you take your next breath in heaven's pure air. Death is not a disaster for the Christian. It's a departure. Laying down your heavy burdens. It's laying aside the chains of earth. It's moving from a tent into a match, and it's casting off the ropes that bind you to earth and sailing into heaven. It's a departure, and Paul is ready to depart. And now he reviews his past life. He says, Timothy, here's where I am today. Let me look back over the course of my life <clears throat> and give you 
a description of my life with three metaphors, a fight, a race course, and a body of truth. He says in verse 7, I have, looking back, fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, fought the good fight, literally in the Greek it means the good fight I have fought. So he puts the emphasis on the action. Here's the principle. Following Jesus means fighting evil. However, victory is certain when we put on God's armor, depend on his power, study his scripture, and walk by his spirit. Following Jesus means fighting evil. However, victory is certain when we put on God's armor, depend on his power, study his scripture, and walk by his spirit. Now, the Greek word for fight or struggle here is the word agony. To agonize is to suffer what? Excruciating pain. Excruciating, of course, comes from the word crucifixion, which is the most painful method of executing someone ever invented by the human race. Paul says, <clears throat> I have fight the good fight. He's saying, I have agonized the agony. What he means, he had in mind here the Greek-Roman wrestling matches from the games, the Olympic games, the Thamanian games. And you, have you ever watched wrestling on television, college or, or Olympic wrestling? It is exhausting. You're grappling with an opponent to the point of agonizing exhaustion in your struggle to win the prize. And our battle began when we decided to follow Jesus. See, before Christ, there was no battle. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to Satan. We were slaves to self. When Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, however, he bought us. Yes? And now we have a new master and we are under new management. When God saves us, he gives us the Holy Spirit who to live inside of us. And he also gives us a new nature. See, before Christ, our old nature loved to sin. Now you have Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in your life. You have a new nature that loves to please God. But you still have your old nature that loves to sin. And they fight in you every single moment. Yes? Of course they do. That's the battle. We want to please God, but our old nature wants to please self. So we experience this struggle, this war, this fight. And when you're in a fight, you need to know your enemy. You have three enemies, all of whom want you dead. The world... Flesh and the devil. Let's talk about that. Ephesians 2.1 lays them out. Paul says, And you, Christians, were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too also formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. So our very first enemy is Satan. He's the ringleader against the rebellion against God. Jesus describes Satan. He says he's a liar. He's a murderer. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy. Not somebody you'd want for a neighbor. Satan hates God. He hates God's people. And he will always try and tempt us into sinning against God. He's the master deceiver. And we will battle him for the rest of our life. And we have to ask, so how do we win the battle against Satan? Glad you asked. The Bible already tells us, Ephesians 6, verse 11. Number one, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Number two, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith. And number three, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will from you. So, if you know there's going to be a fight, number one, armor up. Put the armor on. Don't get into a sword fight if all you're wearing is a swimming suit. By the way, don't fry bacon in a swimming suit either. Just saying. Put on appropriate attire for the activity you're involved in. We're in there in a sword fight. Put on... Some of you are really slow. <laughs> You just microwave the bacon. I know. You don't sit there over a skillet and actually cook the stuff, right? Okay, I get it. Put on the armor if you know you're going to be in a fight. You know it's coming up. Number two, if you know there's a fight, not only put on the armor, be on the alert. Satan is like a what? Roaring lion. He stalks. He ambushes. He's trying to kill you by an ambush attack. That's what temptation's all about. 
Thirdly, if you're going to fight Satan, you first submit to God. Submit, therefore, to God, and then you will be able to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our problem is we go, mano a mano, man, come on, come and get me, Satan. Now, that's really stupid because you and I have no power to fight him. But if we submit to God, we have the power of what? The indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't have the power in ourselves, but John 4, 4 says, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who's that? God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. Utilize that power. Depend on God's power, not our own. Second enemy is what the Bible calls the world. We live in the world. The world is the culture, the society, the way of thinking that does what? It opposes God. It follows Satan. It says, no prayer in schools. You can't teach people the Ten Commandments. For heaven's sakes, they might obey them. And that's teaching religion, and that's against the law. That's the world. They oppose God. They follow Satan. So the world loves to sin. God says, sin infuriates me. So... God, don't tell me I can't sin, so the world hates God and those who are the messengers. That's you and me. 1 John 2 tells us, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So Satan is going to utilize, he specializes in taking the lusts of this world to tempt us into sin. And by the way, if you're concerned about temptation, there's only three of them you have to worry about. There's only three categories of temptation. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, right? Money, sex, power, gold, guys or gals and glory, whatever you want to call it. Satan is very simple. He uses what works. Satan loves to take the good gifts of God. By the way, money, sex, and power, all gifts from God. And he teaches the world how to use them and misuse them and use them to exalt themselves instead of exalting God. Satan works through the world system and he promises you pleasure if you gratify those desires outside God's will. So how do we, how do we win the battle against the world if they're our enemy? Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed pressed into the shape of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The key to not letting the world press you into its mold. By the way, do you ever feel pressure to conform to the world? Of course, every day there's pressure. The world tries to push you into its mold and adopt its values and live like it's live, etc. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, the key to not letting the world press you into its mold is to change the way you think. And how do you change the way you think? Fill your mind with Scripture. Fill your mind with the Word of God and your mind will be renewed. Your mind will be transformed. God's living Word will teach you how to think like God thinks, how to love what God loves, how to act like God acts. And when God's Word transforms us, you know something? The world won't change us. God will work through us to change the world. That's the whole point. Third enemy, the flesh. The flesh is our old sin nature. We inherited from Adam and Eve. You didn't ask for the flesh. You got it at birth, right? Your parents got it from birth. It's the old sin nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve, and the flesh is self-centered. The flesh that's in your body is a narcissist. It's always looking in the mirror putting on makeup, doing its hair, wants to be large and in charge, wants to be the center of attention. And we look at Hollywood and we go, can you believe those people? Without the power of the Holy Spirit, that's us. That's the flesh, right? That's bridezillas. I want to be the center of attention, right? By the way, males are equally as bad. It just takes different forms. The flesh is a control freak. The flesh sings the song from the Lion King. I just can't wait to be king, right? The flesh is that part of us that chooses to please itself instead of pleasing God. And the Bible says the flesh, that old nature, is at war with the Holy Spirit. There's a battle in us going on all the time, a civil war. The flesh is that enemy within, and we battle it all the time. And you win the battle against the flesh, Galatians 6, 16 says... But I say, Galatians 5, I'm sorry, Austin caught this, thank you. It's Galatians 5, not Galatians 6. But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Wow. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. That means they put it to death with its passions and desires. And it's real simple. Only the power of God, the Holy Spirit, living in us can conquer our flesh. But we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit by doing what He says. When we're walking with and obeying the Holy Spirit, He gives us the power to put to death the flesh and to deal with the temptations of our old sin nature. And by the way, when you were a kid, did you ever look at people that were 75 and say, there's no way that they could have any sexual lust. They're dead. You didn't think that when you were 16 years old, you look at your grandparents and go, take a shower. Your grandchildren are thinking that right now. The flesh never dies. It never dies. We're going to be battling the flesh until we get a new body and get out of this place. But you have the power of the Holy Spirit that will give you the ability to put those to death. But we have to depend on Him to do it. So we have this war. We have a war with the world on the outside, a fight with the flesh on the inside, and a struggle with Satan 24 by 7. And this battle is going to last our entire life. And Paul says, this fight is a good fight. It's a noble fight. It's a worthwhile fight. It's a fight for the honor of Jesus Christ, our King. It's a fight to take gospel to the world for people for whom Christ died. When, Jesus, when Satan wants to keep those people in bondage, that's warfare. You're bringing the gospel of freedom to people who are in bondage and Satan's trying to stop you. That's a warfare, but it's a worthwhile fight. It's a worthwhile fight to live a holy life in a moral pig pen so that people will see the life of Christ in you and be drawn to the Savior. It's a worthwhile fight. We're in a fight whose outcome will impact people for all eternity. Paul says, it's a good fight. Stay in the fight. Don't go AWOL. Not only a good fight, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I've also finished the course. The course I have finished. Here's the principle. We will finish well when we stay focused on Jesus and eliminate everything that keeps us from running well. We will finish well when we stay focused on Jesus and eliminate everything that keeps us from running well. Now, the word course here refers to career or a race. Everyone is running the race course of life. Everyone. Very few run well. Most run poorly. Many won't finish. The writer of the Hebrews gives us some excellent advice on how to run well. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance or weight or hindrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now laying aside every encumbrance, that's hindrances, impediments, burdens. It literally is the things that weigh us down, the things that slow down our race. Many times they're good things. The bad things are real simple. Well, you know, being addicted to drugs, that would impediment your race. Well, that's pretty obvious. But it's a good thing. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Gold was discovered in California in 1848, 1849. And in 1849, the gold rush followed, right? Over 250,000 pioneers came west in covered wagons, Conestoga wagons. It took about four to six months. It was a 1,500-mile journey from Independence, Missouri, this jumping-off point to Sacramento, California, which was the end point or Oregon Trail. Many pioneers made a serious mistake of trying to carry too much stuff in their wagons. And over the, over the year, the trail was littered with all the stuff that had to be abandoned because it hindered them from what? Getting to California. I mean, people would take literally cast iron stoves in the Conestoga wagon, try and get that across a river. That's interesting. 
They were just taking too much stuff because they tried to stack and pack the whole house into the Conestoga wagon because they were going to need all that stuff in California. Well, it hindered them from getting to California, so they dumped it. Today, we do many, many, many good things, but they may be out of place. Our encumbrances can be too many emails, too many calories, too many toys, too much stuff, too many good activities, good activities, just too many of them, too many commitments, too much screen time on phone and computer. Whatever is compromising our ability to run our spiritual race needs to be eliminated. Hasta la vista, baby, right? It needs to go. You can't run a marathon very well if you're carrying the kitchen sink. Many people are trying to run the race of life, and they're trying to carry all the stuff, not physical stuff. That's, not the, that's easy stuff. It's the emotional baggage. It's, the, it's all the stuff, all the stuff of this life. We have to do all this stuff. Really? Does it impede your ability to run the race and finish well? If it does, Hebrews says, get rid of it. He talks about the sin which so easily entangles us. You know, what he's really talking about there is temptations that routinely trip us up. It's things that we habitually stumble over. Easily entangles us. That usually means a temptation that Satan knows that you have a vulnerability to. Now, Satan's not very creative. If he finds a temptation that he knows you're vulnerable to, you know what he's going to do? He's going to use it over and over and over and over and over and over. He's not going to try and create a new one. He knows what works with you. He's going to keep using that. I'll never forget, I was 24, had a roommate, and uh, we were both in a singles group at church, and <clears throat> we were talking about lust and dealing with it. And um, I said, um, he said, well, what do you deal with? And I said, well, at 24, what do you deal with? Women, of course. That's, the, that's what all 24-year-olds go with, right? He said, well, no, my number one lust is food. Now, when you're a 24-year-old single man, now this guy was probably 100 pounds overweight, so I should have picked it up. For him, that was his entangling sin. So it doesn't have to be the same stuff. We've all got sins that we easily trip over, temptations that we fall into, and Satan knows them very well. And if we don't want to trip over that, we need to watch where our feet's taking us. Right? Pay attention. You're on the race course. Watch where your feet's going. It means you have to stay alert on the racetrack. Paul says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Commit to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. You know, the key to finishing the race, keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. Don't drop out. I talk to people routinely who say, well, I'm going to take a little break from ministry. And the little break turns into 15 years. And now you spend 15 years chasing the trinkets of this life, and you go, I'm 15 years older, but I'm 15 years closer to Jesus. Or have I just gotten diverted for 15 years? He says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. All our races are individual. We're not competing with each other. We finish well by staying on the track that God has designed for us. Don't worry about the lane that somebody else is running in. Stay in your own lane. Each one of us is called to fulfill our own life purpose that God has called us to do. You know, it's very easy to look over in somebody else's lane and go, if I only had their problems, I would count myself blessed. Because my problems are so overwhelming. Now, none of you say that in manna. You know why I know that? Because you hear the prayer requests of our brothers and sisters. You know that nobody in this class is walking an easy road. You know that. That's why we need to pray for each other. We are in the race. God has the path for us. God has a struggle that I have that you may not have. When someone gets diagnosed with an illness, that may not be what I have, but I've got struggles and you've got struggles and we are here for each other, but we're not to look at each other and go, I'll trade my problems for yours because the bottom line is you don't know what they're dealing with. Pray for each other.
Here's the real key. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You win the race by fixing your eyes on Jesus. And when someone quits and walks away from the race, it's because they've taken their eyes off Jesus and they've forgotten about the finish line. They got distracted by the toys and the trinkets and the trappings of this life. And they wanted to go find the perfect place up by the lake where they could, you know, fly fish 200 days a year. And there would be no troubles and no trials and no cell phones. And they're completely out of the race and doing nothing productive for the King of Kings. What a disaster. They forgot about the finish line. See, when Jesus was on earth, he ran the perfect race. He left the model for us to follow. If you want to finish the race, remember that, good, that Jesus, your good shepherd, is running right ahead of you. And your job is real simple. Fix your eyes on Jesus and follow him. Follow him. You'll finish well. Last thing Paul says, the faith I have kept. Here's the principle. Guard the treasure of God's word by knowing what it says and then passing that truth on to others. Guard the treasure, the treasure of God's word by knowing what it says and then passing it on to other people. When he talks about the faith, he's talking about the contents. He's talking about the body of truth that's the Bible. And Satan, of course, we talked about last week, will always attack the truth of the Bible. The Bible is the only document in this world that tells people the truth. It tells people the truth about your origins, your destiny, our purpose on earth. Most importantly, the Bible tells us how we can have a relationship for it forever with Almighty God through Jesus Christ. And we know Satan's a liar. He's going to try and destroy the truth. He's going to add to it, subtract from it, dilute it, deny it. And Paul says, God has entrusted me with this treasure, this truth, this gospel, this good news, and I'm going to protect it from air. I'm going to pass it on to the next generation. Truth is priceless. The most priceless treasure we have, and it's in your lap. It's in God's word. It is God's word. And Paul says, I didn't fumble it. I didn't lose the ball. I passed that truth on to the next generation. I put it into the hands of the next generation. And that's what we're doing. We're to pass the next generation. Our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, our neighbors, wherever the Lord brings people into our life, pass the football of truth to them. And we're commanded to guard it, know it, and transmit the next generation. Last thing Paul does, he says, I've looked at where I am today, I've looked in the past, and now I'm going to look to the future. Verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here's the principle. Since we will all stand before Jesus on that day, we should be careful to live godly lives on this day. Since we will all stand before Jesus on that day, we should be careful to live godly lives on this day. Now, he uses the word crown of righteousness. And the crown of righteousness, this term probably has multiple meanings. It may mean a special award or reward that's given by Jesus to some believers on the basis of their sacrifice and service for him. 1 Corinthians 3 seems to indicate that, that those who have sacrificed and served him, the quality of their work, God, Jesus will reward with special rewards. It also may mean this crown of righteousness is simply the crown of life, which, of course, is given to everyone who loves Jesus and follows Jesus. So regardless of whether it's a special award or whether it's one that we'll all get, Paul says an interesting thing. He says, I'm looking forward to meeting Jesus face to face. And he is my judge. We talked about that last week. Jesus the Savior is also Jesus the judge. So Jesus is going to judge everyone, and yet Paul can say, I'm looking forward to meeting my judge face to face. Number one, I'm redeemed, the blood. Number two, I've lived my life in such a way so as I won't be ashamed when I stand before him. On that day. And that day, of course, refers to the day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We talked about that last week, and he will evaluate our lives. Live in such a way that we can look forward to meeting Jesus and not hang our head in shame because we wasted a good chunk of this life. It's interesting, the very last section of the very last look, book of the Bible, Revelation, it's a prayer where the saints say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the world today 
and say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's almost like you're at home with your siblings alone. And chaos breaks out. And hopefully someone says, Mom and Dad need to come home now. We need adult supervision. That's planet Earth. Without the King of Kings, this place is a wreck and going to be continuing in that direction. So pray that the King of Kings will come quickly. Let's summarize. Marty will bring our prayer and praise time. The principles we've talked about. We will finish life well, which I assume you all want to do, when we offer ourselves to God every day. That's every morning, every morning, every morning. And when we view our death as a departure, not a disaster. There are far worse things that can happen to you than you dying. Far worse. Trust me. Number two, following Jesus means fighting evil. However, victory is certain when we put on God's armor, depend on His power, study His scripture, and walk by His Spirit. That means follow or obey His Spirit. Three, we will finish well when we stay focused on Jesus and eliminate everything that keeps us from running well. Four, guard the treasure of God's word by knowing what it says and then passing that truth on to others. And then lastly, since we will all stand before Jesus on that day, we should be careful to live godly lives this day. A lot of truth, a lot of meat, and for those that want to finish well, an extraordinarily spiritual will and last testament. We want to be able to say with Paul, with integrity, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You want to live that way. You want your family and friends to be able to say that about your life when you're laid out in the coffin because we're all going to be there. Don't waste the time Jesus gave you. It's a precious, precious time. Thank you so much for listening and applying the next 167 hours until we meet again. Uh, and we'll be reading ahead in Ephesians. Lord willing, we'll start there next week. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.